0: Whitney Schubert on the show today of Polymer Selections. Hello. Hey, Levy. Nice to see you.
1: Yeah, it's nice to be here.
0: So tell me a little bit about Whitney.
1: Oh, that's open ended.
0: <laughs> well, let's start with where <laughs> you grew up. You grew up in the Northwest?
1: Yes, I, I grew up in Oregon. I grew up, um, I was born in Eastern Oregon in a small town called Pendleton. Known for sweaters, yes, yeah, especially in Brooklyn, man. I'm seeing that stuff everywhere. The Pendleton wool shirts, Very yep. Popular. The woolen, the woolen mills is not far from the the house I I was I grew up in, um, and also a rodeo, big rodeo. So I um I had a definitely Seen a lot
0: of that in Brooklyn too. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so I grew up around I grew around horses and uh, I grew up you know with farm animals and um, my dad's a Mechanics, so I was around lots of farm equipment and lots of farmers, which was really, I didn't really know it was great when I was a kid, but something I definitely appreciated later in my life. Um, and then my mom remarried and I ended up moving to Portland, which was a whole new world. What was that change a big like? big city. Um Portland is not an exceptionally diverse city, um, but relative to where I had been, um, it (laughs) felt... Are you saying
0: that it's pretty white white bread? I
1: actually think I just recently read an article that it was, you know, it's the whitest city per capita in America. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but there were certainly people were different than those that I had grown up with. So that was was already um, a very good thing for me as a young person, Um, but also just a lot of really creative people. And I loved seeing what people were doing. I wasn't as aware of it, you know, in junior high and high school, but then, of course, after I came back from college, um, being able to see the exciting kind of ventures that people – you know, it's a city that's – there's a really strong entrepreneurial spirit, but it's also a very encouraging city. People are like, oh, you want to – you wanna put a bunch of bacon strips on maple bars? I mean, that's like an awesome idea. Like we will support you and buy those maple bars. And so it it's funny to see how many we like wild and wacky ideas come out of Portland because people feel so encouraged to just go there.
0: Which is that that kind of earnestness <clears throat> that gets skewered by the New York Cynical, like Portlandia stuff, right? They're like, "Oh, we're so happy about these bacon <laughs> bars," and they're like, "No, I'm not so into it." I don't know. Is that well,
1: I mean, the Portlandia thing is funny. I mean, uh, I I think any Portlander who's offended by it takes himself a little too seriously. What are you I mean, trying there's to say? there's a tiny bit of truth. To I it grew up <laughs> in that area. You will not mock me. So yeah, I uh, I think it's great. I think it's it's really part of the the spirit of the city and something that impacted me a lot as a young person. How long were you there? Uh, Twenty years. I mean, I've been in New York for two years, so I'm I'm fresh.
0: How's that change affected you? I mean, it's been two years, but you seem to have like met a lot of people and settled in. I mean, what do you think?
1: Well, New York is um, it's a city where you can kind of reinvent yourself. Not that I at all came here to do that, but knowing that you have that opportunity, I do it every day. (laughs) I I see, I see that. <laughs> but I mean you have kind of um when you don't have this large built-in community that you were born into and there's no real expectation of you, it's interesting to see where you go. And I don't necessarily mean professionally because that, that was something that was kind of built in for me when I came. But personally, yeah, you you explore things you maybe never would have if you were around all the people that you
0: Are we talking about <laughs> drugs again? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I no, I mean when you're around alcohol as much as we are, you don't right. really need to go there. So you are, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> all right, so, so, but you, you went to college in in Portland,
1: in in Oregon Wine Country. Oregon, I'm sorry,
0: McMinnville.
1: Sorry, in I McMinnville, yeah. it's all one Duke, Oregon to me. I don't in the know. The Willamette why I would think, Valley. Because I would
0: live there, I would know better.
1: I feel like saying Willamette a couple of times so people know how to say yeah, it. Yeah, could you actually? Willamette. <laughs> yes, in Oregon they say rhymes with damn it. Right, right, that helps, right. Yeah.
0: And then there's no Oregon. It's
1: Oregon, yeah, like O R Y G U N. That kind of spelling. It helps phonetically, but Oregon and the Willamette.
0: And what did you study in college?
1: I studied I studied international business and French. And that
0: that that's worked out pretty good for you because that's been pretty much your deal.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because I at the time I, I wasn't. I mean, when you're when you're young in college, you know you. Might have a glass of wine every once in a while, but it usually comes out of a larger vessel and is <laughs> not usually of the art. Larger it's vessel, like a, you know, <laughs> out of a jug or something, <laughs> like a know? truck. <laughs> beep beep beep! Like a
0: semi backs into your living room, and you're like, "All right."
1: But I really didn't. I didn't know what I wanted to do with that, but it, um it, it really it all kind of makes sense now when I look back on it, you know, I was in Oregon wine country. It's true that, you know, when we were of age, you know, my roommates and I, we would, we would go tasting at tasting rooms, which was, you know, which was lovely. It's like these bucolic rolling hills. It's very pastoral and you sit out on the patio. And, and so it, I think I developed a little bit of an interest in college, but it, it wasn't until I went to France, I think that I, that I thought, Oh, this, this is actually really something that I, I think I could do and that I, and that I might love.
0: And how'd the France thing come along?
1: I, I applied for a, a French government teaching assistantship. I studied abroad in college for um, for six months in Paris, and I lived with a host family. And my my host mother really liked wine, um, and was totally cool with every single person at dinner having their own bottle, which was really wild for me as like an eighteen. I was no, I take that back. I was nineteen, and. Um, That would be
0: wild for me now at thirty six. Yeah,
1: and (laughs) and and you know,
0: like everyone had their individual bottle. No, no, no. I just mean by the that would be a great party. (laughs) If you're like, who's gonna get to the bottom first?
1: (laughs) Instead of your wine glass, you just have (laughs) bottles.
0: Like, could you imagine? Like, here's Petey. We're gonna give him Napoleon, and then Joey over here, he's going Burgundy tonight. And then everyone had their individual. Don't touch my bottle, bro.
1: Oh no, she was. I mean, she was great, but she um there was. A lot of smoking at dinner and a lot of yeah. wine at dinner, and and I remember I really just wanted to take it all in. And I remember walking down the street in Paris with like a baguette in one hand and like a round of Camembert in the other, and being like, "This is what we do here, it's yeah. you know, experiential living." That's what I did too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I got I got, I was really broke because I'd spent all my money in my last day. I was like, "Well, I have to eat," and so I could afford a round of Camembert, and so I went in the cheese store and bought. A round of camembert and I eat it the entire day, like just by myself. And still to this day, if I have camembert, it just reminds me of being very poor and a little miserable. It's yeah. like a weird association.
1: I know. It's amazing. That was never one of those like Europe on a shoestring kind of like just, just <laughs> buy a round of camembert and you'll be fine.
0: <laughs> just, for me, I can really yeah.
1: never eat it Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so that was great because I really felt like I had it just coming at me on all. You know, my, yeah. my host mom was so into it, and so so I started tasting things and and um, and becoming a little bit more comfortable. And and it's amazing how this is a you know funny thing to say and probably not surprising to anyone. But um, alcohol actually helps you become a little bit more comfortable when you're learning a foreign language.
0: Is that true? That's been my problem. <laughs> Cause I've been really bad at learning foreign languages, and if only I were a little drunk.
1: Well, I mean there's a certain element of shamelessness that is also required. Um, oh,
0: you're talking about speaking it. Yes. Oh, okay. Not okay. understanding. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> not like like conjugating verbs and stuff. <laughs> no. Like okay. But I
1: mean, you know when you you know you lose just a tiny bit of inhibition, inhibition. and then you and then you feel like, "Oh, I'm really going to like throw that verb out that I'm not sure if it's right or, you know, just right. make up and a noun because it sounds a little similar and, and you make progress. And so that was really fun for me because I was, you know, I was in a host family and, and speaking French all the time and f- I mean, fumbling like to an embarrassing degree, I'm sure. But, um, but you know, at some point you come out on the other side. And so, um, so yeah, a seed had kind of been planted for me. I knew I wanted to, you know, I wanted to go back to France, uh, after that experience, I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to do that or what I was going to do. Um, but I had this opportunity to apply for a teaching assistantship, and um, and so I I applied and and was really fortunate that it worked out. And so I lived in southern France in a, a tiny port town called La Ciotat, which is in between Marseille and and Cassis.
0: And I like that you don't need to be drunk to say it today, so that's good. <laughs>
1: it's upper East Side water man. <laughs> yeah, it
0: takes away all the thoughts of you know self esteem and inhibition that you
1: might have. So. Um, So I taught English in a high school. I had a bunch of kids who had no interest in learning English.
0: You taught English in high school? Oh, you taught English. Sorry. I'm I'm messing with you.
1: (laughs) After that whole thing about, like, I don't want to be made fun of for how I say things. (laughs) Yes, in a high school.
0: (laughs) Because that would be awesome if you're like, Todd, what up, dog? What are you doing here? He's like, test some recipes. Kind of like a low, quiet talker (laughs) voice, yes. So you go down and you're teaching English. Yep.
1: Teaching English to kids School who don't kids. want to learn. Yeah. Um, I mean, they certainly wanted to learn some things. We'll teach you this word if you teach us this word. Oh, Okay. Okay. Yeah, but there, the, the jockeying didn't get them very far, and so, um, so I, you know, I, I worked twelve hours a week.
0: That's was, uh, a lot. The <laughs> only I,
1: I had never ever. I,
0: Let, I, let's uh, let's run that again. One two hours a week. <laughs> one like. two.
1: One two. And and leading up to that experience, I had. I tend to cram a lot of hours into a, a 24-hour day, and so I had no concept of what, what I was supposed to do with myself because yeah. I had always been so busy that I I thought I was never going to get everything done. This is kind of how I lived my life as a, a high schooler and college student, and so <laughs> I'm there and teaching 12 hours a week, and I'm thinking, wow, this is, like, wild. What do I do, you know? And so, so one of the teachers I was teaching with gave me a bike, so I started riding around and kind of exploring the region, and then I started going to wineries and tasting and... Um, Mostly in Provence, um, but definitely made my way up a little bit to the Rhone, um, and that's when I started thinking that I really, I was paying more attention. Then, you know, I um, it wasn't just this thing that to do socially, even though I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I started uh, paying more attention, and um, and then, you know, at the end of my time there, it was a year contract. I, I thought to myself, I'm going home to this really vibrant wine scene. But I think there's something here, <laughs> you know. So I went home, and I, um, I started working in um, in the tasting room at Rex Hill Vineyards, which is a very um, it's one of the the earlier Oregon wineries. They were established in the early eighties. So there was a lot of history there, a lot of older vines. And I, I worked in the tasting room and just started learning about Oregon Pinot Noir. And I loved I <laughs> loved having contact with customer with consumers. I had a blast doing I think that. you're really good at that. Oh.
0: Like you're really engaging with people right away. Thanks, Levy. Because I try to make it difficult, and you're still good at it. I'm like, I'm gonna beat
1: you down, Levy.
0: (laughs) Good you with kindness. You know what I mean—that kind of thing.
1: I loved that, but um, I also, after a while, you know, you're pouring the same four Um, or five wines, and at some point, you get sick of hearing yourself talk. You know, it's like, how can I tell this story any differently? And um, and I, at that point, um,
0: just make stuff up. You're like, it's actually named after Tyrannosaurus Rex, (laughs) and just to see their reaction.
1: Yeah, that's great. I, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I certainly probably got a little creative. But um, fortunately around, you know, I came home in May, started working in May, and then um, harvest rolled around. Yeah. And I, I mean, literally, like, raised my hand and said, please, 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 like, let me do anything. And so I would work in the tasting room during the day, and then we often would have fruit arrive in the evenings or in the early mornings. So I was kind of sandwiching tasting room hours with whenever fruit would arrive, and you know you got to work the fruit that comes in, and um, so that was lots of fun. I mean, having a headlamp, you know, on the sorting table, which I actually do sometimes in Burgundy because it, it helps see like variations in color. Yeah, um, anyway. I do it sometimes just in my own home because <laughs> just just we, we don't like to bake on head. <laughs> That's great.
0: <laughs> no, but I mean, did that kind of take you back a little bit to the the farm roots? Yeah.
1: Definitely. I mean, I um i like to get I like to get my hands dirty, and um you know I mean, as a kid I chopped wood and buck bales every once in a while, and uh, you know played with my dad's like tools <laughs> you know i like yeah. I liked to get dirty and and i really um I have such an enormous um, amount of respect and appreciation for for that work and how vital it is to all of our livelihoods, not just the livelihoods of those people who are doing it. And so I loved being closer to the fruit. I mean, that was really like I felt like I was at the source, you know. And it's once things arrive in bottle, you you instantly have a disconnect, even if you know you you try your best to be connected. I I really loved that idea of being able to go to the source. Especially if it's (laughs) corked. I'm really not feeling connected to this wine. (laughs) I'm not getting the experience (laughs) they intended. So, um, so yeah, I got to work the fruit, and I got to um, watch them, you know rack barrels and clean tanks. And, you know, I mean, really, it's a lot of cleaning that goes on in a winery. Um, They don't tell you that part. it's like the number of hoses I coiled. (laughs) No, but it was, you know, I got to see how the filter worked. I mean, things that, you know, were really interesting for me. And it's really interesting in the first four months in the wine industry. You know, I, I felt like that was Chronologically, how it should be, and we don't all have that. We don't all do that. Yeah, Yeah, we we, don't all have that experience. We read the books
0: sometimes and work our way back.
1: And and I and I I recognized at that time how lucky I was to be having that experience and really appreciated it because it was
0: still earlier. Like, how old were you at that time?
1: Oh yeah, I was twenty-two.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, are you old enough to drink? Yes. Okay. Why don't you go help us clean the filter? I would
1: card the guests at the Tasty Room, and then they would card me. Oh really?
0: That's (laughs) really hilarious. (laughs) No, but I want to see your idea. (laughs)
1: But um I I still at that time even though I was I was working harvest and having fun getting to know everybody and you know it was harvest in Oregon and and I I'm sure it's like this in other regions so I haven't had the opportunity to work in other regions. You know, winemakers are um it's Oregon is a very collaborative wine region, but they all really rely on each other for things. So, you know, somebody's driving over and loading up your, you know, forklift because their forklift just busted and they have you know, a bunch of fruit they need to move. and and so I, I liked I got to meet a bunch of winemakers, you know, and I so it wasn't really at that time even uh, apparent to me that that was something that I was going to want to be involved in long term, but I was having a blast. I just I loved it. And um, And so at some point I, I after harvest, um, asked if they would be open to me selling some of the higher end like single vineyard wines in the in the Portland market. I needed to get out of the tasting room at that point. I was really ready for a little bit of a change. And they bit. They were really open to it. And so so that was my first experience on the streets, you know. And I and at that time, it was great because I just had those, like, four or five wines. And I, I knew you those knew wines, them. you know. Like <laughs> it's, it was different than working for a distributor and kind of doing the whole, like, okay, I'm going to do all my reading and figure out, you know. And so I... Um,
0: you're like, let me tell you how the filter works on this bad boy. <laughs>
1: no. But I'd seen the sites and I'd been in them, and and I of knew course, the history, yeah. and and so um, I started making appointments and going to see you know some buyers who had been buyers in Portland for you know 30 years or something, and and I just had a ball. I loved calling on people, and um, and and I loved working with. There was a local distributor, and so I was kind of an additive. You know, I mean, I was an additional salesperson for them. You know. And um so I did that for a few months and started thinking, oh I, I miss French wine. And it's and I not because I wasn't enjoying um the wines or enjoying the Oregon wine community, but I really I missed French wine. And um I met this guy who was coming down from Seattle, uh Rafer Nelson. He's a doll. He now has a, a small import company in the Northwest. But he was coming down from Seattle, he was, he worked for a company called Triage Wines, which in its day was a pretty spectacular Pacific Northwest uh, importer distributor. And they were based in Seattle, and he was coming down to Portland on a Tuesday, selling all day Tuesday, spending the night on Tuesday night, selling all day Wednesday, and then they would send a truck down on Thursday to deliver. And I thought, well, that sounds really complicated. <laughs> and I asked him, I said, are you ever thinking about you know hiring an Oregon person? And he said, well, I'm not really at liberty to tell, but I think one of our owners, you know, there are two owners of the company. One wants to move down. To Portland, and um, so yeah, we, we might need to be hiring somebody, and so I just started sending resumes and calling and, and I, I mean I had I had seen his book and, and really liked the book, and it, you know, in Portland, this isn't as much this way in New York I've found, although I'm sure there are exceptions to the rule. Um, reps want to taste each other's wines. so you know you're kind of well, doing really the, not that way in New York. <laughs> no. So you're doing the cattle call thing. And some places, of course, restaurants, you have established appointments. But retail, you know, you kind of show up and you're like, really? I'm third in line? Well, might as well taste with everybody. Yeah, yeah. Do you do that? No totally. way. Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: Like in a, another dude's appointment, you're like, oh, yeah, let's sit down and try it.
1: Well, I mean, it certainly depends. I mean, if they have a supplier with them or if that, you know, it depends right, on, right, you, can, right. you can gauge whether or not that's going to be an acceptable right, right, thing. Right. But
0: Because um, I can't imagine that happening. I actually tried to do that once in Florida. Because I was really running late, and I was Mm -hmm. like, can we combine these two appointments, and you guys can just... And it was disastrous.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, um, you don't just do it with reps you don't know. Reps you don't know. But, I mean, over time, when you've been selling in the market, and and they might have a new vintage of something that you really love, or you just, you know, when you're selling... Somehow,
0: I could see you getting away with that, but (laughs) if I... Not not everyone could do that, I don't think.
1: Well, and I also think they knew I wasn't gonna be like, ooh, that's a rough deal, you gotta pour this today. Yeah, you know
0: yeah. I mean? yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> I mean, I just wouldn't say anything if I didn't like the wine, and if I liked the wine, I would, you know, be complimentary. And so
0: Because I think a lot of people would be like, Well, it's good, but I think I have a better Pinot in yeah, my book. You, you know like that? I mean? just yeah, yeah. yeah. I, can say, I mean, that's what would happen, I think, you know.
1: Well, New know. York is a different it's a different
0: Yeah.
1: So um, so that's how I mean I would ask if he and I started chatting, and I'd be like, "Hey, you mind if I taste or whatever?" Or he just like throw me a couple bottles, like from behind, while he was talking about them, and I'd do a little pour or whatever. So I started to taste a lot of wines in the portfolio, and it was a really cool portfolio. I had no idea at that time how cool it was. I just knew that I wanted to get back into French wine, and and um, so anyway, I they ended up hiring me, and I was so naively fortunate. It's it's really um, funny to think about now. And then um, one of the owners moved down, and it was just the two of us, just um, the two of us pounding the pavement. And <clears throat> he was a really quiet fella, so he started doing more of the, in, like, uh, administrative side of things while I was out in the market. Um, but I can't, I still can't believe how formative that time was for me, because I really, when you work for a company that tiny, you do everything. You know, I delivered my own wines, I unloaded 40-foot containers, I, you know move pallets around with <laughs> you know the pallet jack all over the warehouse and then you know you'd sit down and do your own invoicing and and that was wild but I really feel like I got th- I mean I was thrown to the wolves and I'm sure in his mind you know he was like oh this like this chick is so naive and I'm just gonna like milk it <laughs> yeah <You know? laughs>
0: how much are we paying you <laughs> nothing all right well can you do some extra stuff
1: yeah. I mean, no, but my my naivety worked to my benefit in, right. all, in all aspects of that job, even sure. in the selling. You I know, find in the wine
0: business, that's how it works. Uh, I yeah. find over and over, you see it as a repeating process for mm-hmm. other people.
1: I think so, too. As long as you're aware enough at some point, um, I think you're, you know, you'll be fine. But he and I ended up becoming very, very good friends. And at some point he was like, you know, you don't have to work this hard. Right, right. <laughs> it's like, you know, with <laughs> my sweat, sweat he, bandana moving, you know, pallets around.
0: Did he tell you that when he was sober or drunk <laughs> when the inhibitions came out? He was like... He's like, I you know, I wanna tell you some things. So I'm gonna to have to tell you to in French though, because I can't say it
1: uh No, he did he didn't speak any other languages. So um so anyway, we eventually I mean we grew the business. Um we had um continued to hire employees. We we rented a, a very large warehouse so we could start receiving containers at our warehouse versus in Seattle and trucking things down. You know, I was working with like a virtual inventory, which was wild. And then I could walk through the warehouse and just like pull my samples, you know, and so things changed a lot. And the company grew and um and it was it was a pretty amazing book. I mean at one time it was I, you know, I got to work with the Dresden portfolio and and the Thies champagnes and um, and austrian and german wines and vindavino austrian wines at the same time and a bunch of cool Well, that's um,
0: pretty cool. You got to work with these and vindavino at the same time. Yeah. That, that's pretty
1: neat. Yeah, and a lot of people are like, "Oh, how do you you know, I yeah. would go on these like I like I went to Austria um, on a vindavino trip and there were a bunch of people on the trip and they're like, "You get to sell the these portfolio too?" I'm Like, "Yeah, well, I mean, it's a it's a small market, so it's almost just was easier for the buyers to be like, "Oh, Austria, triage." Right, right, right. <laughs> there weren't any others right. and and um and then, you know, this really cool, I see the wine sometimes in New York, um, small portfolio out of Virginia called Wine Traditions. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, Ed Addis, who I think is one of the greatest, sweetest men in the wine business. Um, but, you know, I, I laugh about it now. I My first bag of wine, I remember I had like on Sec, Marciac, Cantalupo Gamay. And and I was, you know, just bopping around with my cool bag of wine right. and my first bag of wine that I got to pour you know so I, I really like I, I cut my teeth on some really special things.
0: Because people think uh, of it as kind of like an Oregon Pinot market right like hey people are gonna have salmon and Oregon Pinot Noir so you're trying to like come in with the Gamay I mean what was that like?
1: Well it's interesting um, that whole kind of um, adventurous entrepreneurial spirit I was touching on earlier is it's a very dynamic wine scene it's different uh, it's, it's very different. I mean, the sheer quantities of wine that move in New York is still mind-boggling to me. It's a bottle state. It's a COD state. You know, people, Portland is. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so <clears throat> people can't buy the quantities of wine that they want to buy, but they're super, super interested in the next cool thing. And so I, I actually, conversely, think that, it's um, difficult for Oregon Pinot producers. Is that
0: true? Because there's too many of kind of the same thing.
1: But, I mean, there are 350 Oregon wineries, mm-hmm, right? Mm. And and while um, there are a lot of restaurants in New York, I mean, in, or in Portland, um, there's not a density of population really for all of those restaurants to be like, Busy every night of the week, mm-hmm. you know, and so the way that they develop their lists is, is very strategic and very focused, and and so there's only so much room for Oregon Pinot Noir on a list when you want to have like a world, you know, a, a list that represents the world. And so um, I I was working imports at the time, so I thought it was great. But you know, then when I um, moved back into the Oregon um, side of things for a while, I started to recognize while there are, are some lists that are very Oregon centric there really is not nearly as much support for the Oregon wine Oregon wines as you would might imagine similar to kind of maybe how finger lakes is in new york Oh, okay except that the, bad. <laughs> like
0: with no well, real champions, I mean, really? No,
1: there are certainly I mean, there's, there's certainly there are a some champions. People. Oh, uh, definitely. Yeah. Just not the concentrations that you would expect. You know, it's not like going to Beaujolais <laughs> and having a list in front of you and, and seeing all, nothing oh, okay. but Beaujolais. Right, you know, right, okay. I mean it's a, there are these really dynamic lists. Um, and and I think, you know, the the winemakers who are out and about and patroning, you know, the restaurants and everything. I mean, there's certainly support. It's just not like you might expect, not like it is in Napa or in Sonoma, or, you know, it's, it's...
0: Is that a tourist thing? Like, do tourists really drive that? Like, if you show up in Napa, and you're from out of town, and you're like, well, we're in Napa, we want to have Napa wine. But if there's less tourists in the market, like in, say, a place like Portland, where people aren't making it such a destination, are there is there less demand to have Oregon Pinot Noir every single night?
1: Well, like, I think so? it's interesting you say that, because the, um, the hotel restaurants... Definitely have a much, much, much stronger Oregon presence. Got it. Um, and 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 those are some of the greatest lists in Portland. Mm-hmm. And, but anyway, I remember um, Roberto Canterno going to Portland to work the market, and his distributor took him out to dinner, and he wanted to drink Oregon Pinot. And I mean, it was this really great list of like wines from all over the world. Like it was. A, a, I think a focus on island wine. So a bunch of Sicilian stuff oh, and Corsican wines. Yeah. And, you know, and he's like, where's and the Jamaican Oregon? And Jamaican Where's the Oregon no, Bino, to, you right, know? Right, right, And it was, it was interesting. It was interesting to hear that perspective um, because it's 45 minutes outside of the city versus the Finger Lakes, which is, you know, it's a trek.
0: Well, I so. find that very frustrating when you go to a place and they want to take you to what they like. Mm-hmm. Like you go to, say, Alsace and they want to take you to the hip Alsace restaurant. And you're like, dude... This is some whacked out fusion stuff. Like couldn't we just go have tart flambé? Yep. Like, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the stuff that they're so sick of. You know what I'm saying? Totally. You're like I'm only here once, bro. Could we hit up some charcuterie, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, and the the um, I think the frustrating thing for visiting winemakers like in know how many Italian restaurants many in times, New York do you Yeah, yeah. To yeah, yeah. Really? <laughs> like, <Bobo> again. <laughs> yeah. I don't don't get me wrong. There's some great support for Oregon wine. It's just not not as much as you might imagine. So, um, thankfully there's support around the country. Um, but yeah, I got to um, I got to sell some really exciting wines uh, early in my career, and from that was able to meet a lot of people that ultimately changed the the trajectory and um, d- destination of my career. You Were know, there I some
0: mean, wines that you've kind of seen throughout your career, like that have either changed in the market or changed in your perception of those wines over time?
1: Wow. Well, um, I. The end of my time at Triage, so I worked for the company for five years, and toward the end of um, my time, I started doing more of the direct import kind of brand management stuff. And um, we were working with, at that time, had um, just started working with Jerome Prévot and Dominique Moreau of Marie Cortan and Cedric Bouchard of um, of Bouchard, you know, all these wild ob champagnes, still alongside, you know, the Thies portfolio. And at that time, we were... <laughs> Well, that's I mean, quite
0: the trick too to pull those off together. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, but I mean, I think you know every wine has its its story, and I and, just mean um, that's a
0: portfolio. Like that's great.
1: It was like, amazing. No, it was amazing. I mean? It's like I'm like, swimming in the coolest champagnes, yeah. and the, um, but we had to. I mean, pound the pavement to sell those wines. You know, I mean, like telling those stories over and over again, and it's just so funny for me that now, ironically, I'm, I'm working with those same three producers again, and you know, and counting down bottles for allocations. Yeah. And I, I really remember. And fielding
0: wait, phone calls from angry people
1: named Levy. Sometimes. <laughs> like, there, sometimes. Why don't I get more? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the the fun parts of my job, the fielding those phone calls, getting to talk to you guys.
0: <laughs> That's nice he uh-huh. that you did that.
1: No, but I, I, I think about that now and think how interesting that is to be. And it wasn't because it was the Portland market. I mean, the Portland market probably established those wines they were they were in the Pacific Northwest before they were in New York
0: I heard about that for like proto Toyota Barbarosco was like mm-hmm. in Portland before it was
1: it's been this, with the same distributor for 30 years for in 30 Portland years, yeah. yeah and it's I mean it's really the only place that's not with Vias in, mm-hmm. in the country you know um, but because people were so adventurous they're like what is this you know and it's, it's oh it's it's Mono variety, mono vintage, mono parcel champagne from um, a satellite region It's like closer to Chablis than it is to Champagne. I mean, to like the Côte Blanc. And so, um, and people were like, "Cool, let's try." I knew a girl it. in
0: school who had mono, and
1: she—you <laughs> can see why people were adverse <laughs> to trying it. Some contagious stuff. (laughs) Well, I mean, we
0: didn't go over to her house for dinner very much.
1: Well, it's funny you mention that because it started to feel at some point like it, like a like pandemic love for those wines. Really? Yeah, and so, um, so it's so fun to see now the amount of support for them, and you know they have this like cultish following. You know, that's that's one of the things that I, I love about my job is when I, you know, when you go to France and you see the wines that are. That are respected and sought after, and that really mean something in the French wine market right now. And then you come home and you have the opportunity to actually introduce people to something that they might not have any ideas is really special. And whether or not people have an open mind is a whole whole different thing. Because they, you know, I, I love loyalties in the the wine industry as well. So I love when somebody has their Sancerre that they've purchased every year for the last ten years, and and that's great. Just as long as they're willing to to taste and be open-minded and see what else is out there because there's just, we're never gonna be able to make the kind of dent in the wine world that there's so much wine in the world, you know? And so. Has
0: that changed over the course of your career? Do you feel like there's just more and more or just because of the portfolios you worked with early on, it always seemed like it was a big world of wine?
1: Um, I think in New York, there's, there are I mean what how many distributor importer distributors are in the, like 300 There's
0: over 130 on like fairly sizable distributors
1: you know? Yeah and so um I mean I don't I don't envy buyers in that regard it's it's so much to sift through and and so so much to to get to know and And that's why you should use 750. All right yeah. sorry. <laughs> Well, yeah. I use 750. I do, too, all the time. The number of times I have. But I mean, I use it for my own portfolio sometimes when I have to look up something that, you know, relative to somebody else's something, you know, which I think is great. The amount of wine that's available in the New York market is astounding. It's astounding. I, I, I guess it's like with music or books, at some point you throw your arms up in the air and think, I'm, you know, I'm never going to know every single thing. So I just got to, like, take whatever's coming at me and something's going to, like, strike me at some point, you know. And that's, I think, what's so fun about about tasting. I mean, I I went to a, I was in Champagne in April and went to a tasting. And, um, I think the first like 30 wines I tasted, I was like, eh, is something wrong with me today? Like, is it like a, a rude day or I'm cranky or, and then I had this wine that just, it's like, I completely woke up like electricity through my veins. And I thought, oh no, I just didn't like anything before now, you know? (laughs) But, but I mean, you got to taste. That's what's so fun about it. So, um, I I actually, we have a, I have, I'm adhering to a strict rule at Planner that's more a joke than anything. But that when you go out, you don't, you don't drink your own wines. I mean, come on. There's so much wine to Well, I think that's
0: why I liked you right away. Because you did that. And it's often not that way. Like, because you came out and you're... To a you know, you were with a winemaker and you were like, "Yeah, we want to drink other stuff." And I was like, "Great, thank God," because <laughs> sometimes it's like zombies. So well, like, winemakers don't come in and drink their own wine, do they? What do you have from our portfolio? And you're like, "Oh my God!" Sometimes they do. Sometimes they get really mad at you if you don't have it, like you know, like verbally abusive. You're like, "If
1: on, you don't bro. have their wine on the list, yeah." Oh wow, yeah, that's an interesting strategy.
0: Yeah, it, <laughs> it's but it's really it happens. I mean, it's happened to me many times. You're like, "Come on, bro," like. You know? Yeah. I don't know. But so you are a Poliner now. How did that come about?
1: Oh, I I was on a, a Dresner trip um, when I was working with Triage, actually.
0: Because you used to bring in their wines.
1: Yes, yes. Um, and I had the great, great pleasure of working with Joe and and Kevin. and um, And so I went on a trip and... Doug was Doug Planner was on the trip um
0: cuz he used to rep uh Dresner Yeah, for a long long time yeah. yeah for a long
1: long time um and met Doug and we kind of just kept in touch I mean you know those trips are fun cuz you meet people from all over the country um and and Joe did a really good job of creating a an environment for everybody to really have a good time together so um so yeah it was a really fun trip and I wasn't with um, I had I had some other reps that I was traveling with from Triage, and so I was partially with the Dresner crew and partially like bopping around. Um, but I met Doug then, and Doug and my boss at at Triage are old friends. They started. I mean, I think Doug pioneered it, but in um, the early two thousands, a group called the Vine Origins Group, and it's um, regional importer distributors around the country that meet about. I don't know two or three times a year and get together in each other's various uh, regions and talk about everything from what they're importing to company morale to you know their delivery driver's breakfast, who knows but I mean they all t- they all get together and like bounce around ideas and so triage was a part of that vine origins group triage no longer uh, unfortunately no longer exists, and so you know every once in a while I just be in communication with Doug and I actually when I left triage i i left imports um, for a period and moved to, I was the director of the International Pinot Noir Celebration for four years, which was a pretty huge departure, but was a ton of fun. And I met amazing people in the wine industry all over the world and became much more deeply rooted in the Oregon wine um, business. Oregon wine, I mean, it's a community, it really is. And one that I still feel lucky to, even from afar, be a part of. But I think after four years, I don't know, maybe it's my personality. After four years of doing anything, who knows, four or five, who knows, um, maybe I need to switch things up. But um, Doug had called throughout um, that time that I was, you know, he'd check in every once in a while and say, hey, we got this, we got this position you know haven't haven't had a great fit or you know have had some turnover interested and i always thought i'm not going to move to new york are you crazy like i live in eden <laughs> that's how i felt about portland and about the oregon wine industry and and then about the right before my last event at ipnc he reached out and I thought, you know, I'm just, I'm going to go hear them out. I felt like um, I had come to New York to visit a friend and had a really amazing weekend and and um, started feeling like this odd, just this pull, this pole east, a pull to New York. And so I decided I'm going to go hear them out because I think they're not going to, like third time, they're not going to reach out again, you know. So I came out and I met with Doug and Tina and I met with some other folks in the company. And of course, the book itself is very, very appealing to me. I mean, there's some... Producers that I'd worked with in my past, but other you know growers that I'd been always interested in, and um, and the position itself, I was I was really interested in. So I took a leap, I took a, a wacky, wild leap. And
0: does it seem like Doug draws on talent from around the country more than other distributors? I see a lot of people from different markets come in and work for Doug.
1: Oh, that, that's an interesting question and something I hadn't I hadn't thought of. I mean, there's certainly a balance. I mean, there. Tim Arnold works for Doug for, you know, 11 years and and um, so I, I think that Doug and Tina more than anything are really interested in finding the right fit and if that means you're from Norway <laughs> there are a certain number of factors to consider um, but I really if, if that think... that means you need eight months of darkness <laughs> and, and some exotic fish There are species. a lot of basement apartments in New York we could find for you <laughs> and so <laughs> um, no, I, I really think they're looking for the right fit. You know, there they're, there's a, a, a dynamic that they're very aware of in the company, um, and, and I think that's something that's been a focus of theirs really in the last three years. Really, how how people play off each other, and and um, but you know, it's New York.
0: People New York is a city. Come of, to that of, beacon.
1: Yeah, I mean, people come to New York. You know, and um, and I, I think that's one of the the greatest. Um, that's part of the life of this city. Is people come here for something, looking for something, you know. And um, and so yeah, I um, I said yes, and I and I came out, and I love the my fellow brand managers, the, the guys I work with, are really just like passionate, dynamic, funny, interesting, um, dedicated guys, and we learn from each other every single day. And I love working with reps. I love being out in the market and getting to meet you know getting to meet buyers. It's it's a really dynamic. Industry, it's super competitive. The New York market, it's really been eye opening for me, but um, but in a good way, I think you know, lots of it's, it's the cream of the crop.
0: So, you work with the French portfolio, your French brand manager, and there have been several short harvests lately in some key areas of France. And what's that been like to deal with? Just you've been here two years, there's the beast of a restaurant scene here that goes through a lot of volume. I mean, how do you? How do you balance the two things? And what are you looking to balance in 2013 where it looks like it's going to happen again?
1: Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think the, the most difficult part of that is um, recognizing how it affects the livelihoods of the growers. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that piece of it is, um, is probably the part of my job that I take most to heart. I mean, I remember when I first started traveling, to France and into Italy and you know when I went to Austria you know it's really obviously magical to be in the vineyards and the cellars and to meet those people but for me my my major takeaway was always that I had a responsibility to 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 tell these people's stories and to to try to find some way to to translate my experience to the people I was working with and I remember in 2012 after the hail in the Loire I had called um Manuela then and I said, How, how's Francois doing? And she said, I, I think he's been on the tractor for 23 straight hours, you know? And I wanted to, like, I wish I had, like, I could record that and play it for, not to say, see, this is why you don't have any wine, but to help remind people um, that while there are a lot of really glamorous, exciting parts of what we do, that these people are working their asses off. <laughs> And it's just not, um, you know, as much as we can continue to keep that conversation going, um, the better. And so that's my first piece is always making sure that growers know that we're thinking of them and that we're, we're here working for them and that we understand um, while we're not necessarily in the trenches there with them, but we understand that the predicament that they're in and we hope to be able to serve as kind of a buffer and to continue to represent their wines to ensure that in vintages where, you know, we, we have a lot more that things, that there are no stop gaps, that things are still okay. Um, And then that part two of that is helping reps communicate to buyers and and us communicating to buyers that, 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 you know, they're not just being cheated. There's an explanation for why there's less wine. And, um, and so that's, that's certainly a challenge. And it's specifically in the Loire and Burgundy. Um, you know, the, one thing that's good about it is that you, you sell all the wine that you have. You know, I mean, that's, that's a good thing. But you have an AC Chablis that you maybe usually buy 1,200 cases of. And in a vintage where you can only get 900 cases, it's just lost sales and lost placements. But it's not like we're unique in that. You know, I mean, everybody's dealing with the same thing, and so it's a matter of being creative. And we've brought on some new producers to kind of help balance that out. I mean, not that that's the only reason, really. If we find something exciting, that's first and foremost the reason to do it. But it does help, it does help to have another Chablis producer to add to the mix, to lighten the load, if you will, the pressure on, on inventory. And so 2013, yeah, I mean the the Loire specifically, I mean Vouvray and, and Montlouis, I mean the, the just it's I I don't know what we'll be getting. I really don't. You know, even in 2012 we're working with a lot of um a lot of Montlouis brut because stuff was, you know, declassified and and I think that what's what's not necessarily good about that, but what's an interesting um part of that um I guess the result is that it does make buyers really aware. And I mean, there are some buyers like you, who, you know, who know what's going on, but other folks who, you know, it's not just, it's not just New York city where we sell wine, you know, (laughs) it's two full States. And so it's, it's good for that to be a part of the conversation, I think, because it helps people understand. So I think you kind of got to let the chips fall where they may, as far as the way people buy wine is concerned. And with allocated wines, allocated wines are allocated wines, regardless of production numbers. You just might have less in a year. Um, and the thing is you want to take care of people who are being supportive and whose business is growing. But the flip side of that is that there isn't always more wine, right? So let's say you get, like, just for the sake of conversation, 100 cases of something, and you have your buyers, who, some of whom have really performed well in the last year, you know, you'd love to be able to give them more, um, but what if everybody is performing well? What if your business is growing with everyone? There's no more wine to give, you know. And so, um, and I, I think people think like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's your story. <laughs> it's actually true." <laughs> right, 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 right. right. <laughs> you know? So, um, so that's been really interesting. But I do think if you, you know, like any business, like it's about communication. Like it's the more you talk to people, the more they get it. And uh, I want, I kind of like it. No, I don't like it when buyers call to complain about their allocations but at least then we get to talk about it and it's not just somebody who's angry stewing somewhere you know so,
0: so. what's going on with i mean you're the french brand portfolio manager so i feel like i should ask you this question what's going on with burgundy in the Pauliner book i mean he has such strength in so many regions but it seems like there's so few burgundies there is that a historical thing or why why is that like that
1: it's actually interesting because we've in the last four months brought on four new growers.
0: So I think I need to schedule some tastings, is that what you're saying?
1: <laughs> no, I mean, you're, you know, I'm, I'm sure someone will be bugging you at some point. But, no, the um, the interesting thing, Doug says often that, I mean, wouldn't it be great if if everybody got to work with Rumié, right? You know, there's a realization in Burgundy that, um, that the, the, the big guns um, have their home and, you um, it's fun to go taste with them and buy their wines and, and um, everything. But Doug is focused so much on um, finding and um, introducing up-and-coming growers to the market. And um, there was, you know, we recently s- um, parted ways with, um, with Le Bay with Becky Wasserman. And at that point, it was a very few number of producers in the portfolio um, some difficult ones to lose, I mean, to no longer work with. Uh, Olivier Lamy, for me, is just, you know, some, some really special stuff. Um, but I think that w- they were looking at a, a big picture, kind of from a business standpoint. There was this desire to really be able to invest in, in direct relationships. And um,
0: so, what's that mean? Well, I mean,
1: the mean challenges. In the broker, the broker world, every broker manages their businesses differently. Um, Burgundy is expensive already. It's expensive, and um, and for every trade layer, share. it's yes, it's tray share. <laughs> for every layer of of um, um, every layer you add. To that transaction, the wines become more expensive. And so, especially in a market like New York, when you're trying to be very competitive and you want to be able to have, you know, village wines that people can pour by the glass. There are certain numbers you want to hit, um, and so it, it becomes sometimes harder to do so if you're, if you're working with an intermediary. That said, you know, we have some suppliers we work with that have been very, very long relationships that we really value, and that, that will never change. It's not a one or the other. It's that there are certain circumstances where you, you see that there's perhaps benefits in in, um, in, a direct, in a direct relationship.
0: Probably in cases where the wines are already pretty expensive. Because, I mean, exactly, you do exactly, work with, yeah. like, uh, brokers for champagne that are, you know, bringing good stuff. But I guess the market bears those prices more. Yeah, you know and, I
1: mean? and that's why that's what I mean. It, it really depends on it depends on uh, the category, the region, the producer sometimes, you know. And so I think that, um, you know, Doug spends a lot of time in France. And um, the great benefit of that is obviously knowing what's going on. But it's also when you have a relationship, a long-time relationship with Jean-Louis Trappé, He'll say like, "Oh, you know, if you if you like what I'm doing, and you're looking for somebody else, like here are the three people you know I'm loving right now." And and so you know you have an opportunity to do some more exploring. And so uh, we just brought in uh, a Chambolle producer, um, Siego. Uh, the wines are beautiful. They're classic, lacy, ethereal Chambolle, um, and um, a Juvray producer, Du Rocher, young, young, relatively under the radar estate. Um, a new Chablis producer, Pommier, that for a period of time was with, with Catcher but hasn't really been in the market for a while. Um, who else? We will eventually see some 2011s from Maison Ilan um, from oh, nice. Ray Walker. Yeah. Um, did he just come out with a book as well? He did. He did. I have I haven't had a chance it. to read it. But. No. Sorry, Ray. Um, I think it just to came the out, list. Though, right? He like, just did like a like, book like, launch and everything. Yeah. Um, but I think that... You know, there's there's so so much change in the wine industry, and I think that um, sometimes it's really hard to let go of things that you've worked with for a really long time. And I also think it's it's important to to adapt and be flexible, and and as the industry changes and as the demands change, to recognize how you need to change with it. And I think with regard to Burgundy, that's very much what Doug has. Been doing in the last few years, and what I think he will continue to do, and so.
0: Do you think a lot of those changes are based just on financial numbers, like just price? Like you know, in terms of exploring new regions or finding new producers, you know, as things go higher and higher and higher, is that is that the bottom line that people are looking at the bottom line and being like, well, we need to think about finding
1: new things because this is expensive. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so much of it, you know, first and foremost, it, the wine has to be great, right? And I mean, the, the, there's no incentive to just work with inexpensive wine. Um, but I, D- Doug focuses a lot when building the portfolio on wines that tend to over deliver. It's really fun to go pour wines and have people go, "Really? That's the deep deal? Like, wow!" You know, and and to still make sure that you're you know you're healthy and uh, as a business. And so um, I. I can't speak for Doug right now, but uh um but working I can for do him it pretty well. I have a I have a pretty good Doug. I can Can you? Well I'm just it's
0: it's more laconic than I usually do, but I can I can I'll you, show you later. You know, he's from Jersey. Oh, is that true? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs>
1: um, but I, I do think that, that that's been a major focus for him. And so, yeah, you, you start to see when you, you know, you taste, like Du Rocher, for example, you know, you taste this producer, Second Gen's taking over, making some really interesting changes in the vineyard, you know, really work in the soil. And y- you go taste and you taste a couple of like Yudi village wines that you think like, wow, somebody could pour this. You know, I mean, that's exciting because it it, it Changes the way you are valuable to your customers, and so um, so yeah, I think that that's certainly something to consider, but um, but not the you know the driving kind of factor I think behind his decision making. And and you know, one thing that I really love about working with with Doug and Tina is that you know Doug may come home having tasted a few things that really excited him, and um, no decision is made. Um, singular. I mean, it's a team decision. So we get samples sent and we taste as a team and everybody has to be on board. And, and um, it would be really easy for Doug to come home and be like, tasted it. Great. Here's the labels, get Cola approvals and, and, you know, get all like the eyes dotted and T's crossed. And it's just not how it is. It's really not. And I, I really appreciate being involved in that process. And I think the other brand managers um, and, you know, our purchasing director, Mark, I think he does as well. And, 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 it's been great, you know. They I got so to go you're to Champagne. You've
0: uh, eight bald people, is that what you're <laughs> Oh, you're like I am not taking this over my dead body. Well, I mean,
1: the amount of times you say no is extraordinary. Is that true? Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, if you want to have a book that people continue to rely on and that people, you know, appreciate and value, you, yeah, you say no a lot, a lot. Um, which is, I really don't like the Dear John letters. <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, those are. It months. was great meeting
0: you. <laughs> I really enjoyed the A, but we're yeah, not going to take your wine. Yeah,
1: and and you know, I think y- you have to tell people why. You have to be honest. You do. Yeah, I mean, you, it's really easy to say it's, timing's not there, and it's like, yeah, well, then you're going to get an email a year from now because right, right. <laughs> <So> that's <laughs>
0: what I do. That's my move.
1: <laughs> and so, um, so no, and I, you know, when I came home from Champagne, I, I had a list of things that I was really excited about, and they said, yeah, yeah. "Well, get samples and let's taste as a team." And I felt like, oh, you actually. You know, you want to know what I think, too, you know, and I I think that that's a really, a really special thing that they've cultivated at the company. And I don't I don't know if my counterparts at a lot of other companies feel that way, but I certainly appreciate that.
0: Is it also true that samples there tend to taste different than samples here? Sometimes, like you know, let first taking that little transatlantic voyage, like or whatever. You know, sometimes it's just different. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, we with wines that arrive on containers, we try to give them. Like, we'll tell the producer your samples arrived. We're going to wait, you know, three weeks to a month, yeah, and talk let them to you settle. In a month, yeah, yeah, just so they don't think. Throwing wine back, <laughs> right, you know, right, and right. not not you know reaching out <laughs> and about it. <saying> no.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, this really sucks. I just <laughs> took it straight from the cardboard on the ship. I'm actually on the deck right now in the Shay's Lounge, <laughs> yep. and I don't like your wine.
1: So, um, so yeah, and and I think that the more time you spend, you know, Doug travels a lot in in California and in Italy and in France, and you know, things start to kind of come your way too, you know, and that's um, that's really interesting as well because producers talk. Mm-hmm. producers talk about whether they got paid mm-hmm. and whether or not someone comes mm-hmm. to visit them mm-hmm. and whether or not somebody works with an interesting array of, the, you know, their lineup. And, and so, you know, it's, it's nice to, to, to know that the feedback from the growers we're working with is positive enough that they'll like throw a friend's hat, like in the ring, you know, for a possible representation. So, so yeah.
0: Whitney Schubert, thank you very much for being here today.
1: Oh, it's been a real treat, lovey.
0: Whitney of Polliner Selection, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you.